Well, good morning, church. We had a slight schedule change this week, but it'll be okay. If you were ready for the upcoming series, Brokenness and Beauty, where we're going to look at sexuality and marriage, divorce, and singleness from 1 Corinthians 6 through 7, that's great, but I wasn't. But don't worry. We just pushed it back one week. Pastor Chris will jump right up here next week. You're not going to want to miss it. The next seven weeks, we're going to be in that series, Brokenness and Beauty. But today, that afforded me the opportunity to, to pray and to really think through and decide what passage to share from God's word with all of us this morning. It didn't take me too long to think through that because the Lord's really been working on my own heart in this area for a number of months, but really my whole life. It's an area that I can personally continue to grow in, but it's also an area that I think is lacking in our culture and frankly, the, the church as a whole. Something I think really our entire society could use a, a good dose of right now, and that is humility. Now, don't scream out amen because that might re- reveal your own pride, okay? Be careful today. But I think we can all agree that it wouldn't hurt for any of us to grow in humility or to look at the other side of the coin. We could all probably use a little bit less pride in our lives at times. If you've been alive or, or had a heartbeat even in the last couple years, I think it's clear that the, the new social media, unfortunately almost all online interaction seems to be lacking a little bit in the area of humility. And often instead it includes an abundance of selfishness and pride. Now before you think my goal today is just to stand up here and judge and condemn all the different social media outlets and news outlets, Rest assured, it's not. I don't really want to address that at all. No, I want to talk about us, about the church, about God's people when it comes to the areas of pride and humility. Now, I realize it's a bit of a ridiculous task to stand up here and teach on humility as if I'm an expert on humility. I really probably have no business to preach on humility, but you know what they say, those who can't do, teach, and those who can't teach, teach. Nobody wants to bite on that, huh? We're gonna make PE, come on, people. And if you teach PE, I'm sorry, but today's about humility. You'll be all right. I really thought I wouldn't have to say that. All jokes aside, but, you know, we just finished up a a series on the Bible, on its sufficiency, its clarity, its authority, its necessity. So rather than me stand up here and try to tell you what I think about humility, we're going to go to God's word. We'll practice what we've been preaching and consider what God's word has to say on the matter. So this morning, we're going to jump into the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter four. It's on page 796 in the provided Bibles. James is a very practical book. It encourages Christians to, to live out their lives faithfully to the Lord. It's sometimes referred to as the the Proverbs of the New Testament because James is full of wisdom about putting our faith into action, being doers and not just hearers of the word. You see, James was written to to Jewish Christians who were struggling. They were struggling with, with quarrels and fights and conflict, with spiritual immaturity with worldliness, many things that the church also struggles with today. Our passage is going to be James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, but I'm going to pick up in James chapter 3, verse 13, just to provide a little bit more context. So follow along with me, James 3, starting in verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now chapter four. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As I was studying and preparing this week, two words really jumped out at me. One directly in our passage and one from the verse right before our passage. And those two words are war and peace. War and peace. This morning I want to argue two points from our text about war and peace. And then we'll close with some practical application. So the two points we're going to look at is number one, pride leads to war. And number two, humility leads to peace. Pride leads to war. Humility leads to peace. So let's begin. Pride leads to war. Now, perhaps that statement comes across a a little harsh, a, a bit extreme, but you see in an age of world wars, potential nuclear war, a war on terror, we tend to only think of large scale wars, right? However, our passage brings us face to face with the reality that wars occur on many different levels. Not just nationally, but even in our relationships personally. You see, we have horizontal wars where we battle and struggle with one another. We have internal wars with our own passions, our own heart, and we have a vertical war. And so often we rebel against our creator. We rebel against God. And the root of all of these wars, I believe, at a minimum is a direct result of our pride. Pride leads to war. Let's begin with our wars with one another. I don't believe I need to convince any of you of this. I'm sure you could all pull out your phone, pull up the headlines, pull up your social media feed, see some clear evidence that we fight and quarrel with each other. And likewise, in our passage, James has been seen horizontal battles. He's been seeing fights and quarrels between believers. So he asks, what causes quarrels 
And what causes fights among you? Now, I know I already said the answer was our pride, but I really want to encourage all of us to to dive in together, dive in with me on this, as we consider what causes quarrels and fights among us. You know, whether we want to admit it or not, we all likely quarrel and fight fairly often. Some of us, though, right, we try to avoid these wars. We like to try to stay on the sideline. But really, we just keep the the fight bottled up, holding it in until one day it builds up to the point where it just explodes out. Some of us are really good at that, right? We can spend years and years and years just avoiding the battle, even though it's building in our hearts. Others maybe like to encourage and even participate in the battle, maybe even provoke a little battle, but so often we like to do it behind the keyboard, right? Because in you know, the virtual world, it doesn't really count, does it? Like we don't have to seek reconciliation and peace as long as it's not real, do we? Or for others, these wars are far too close to home. Perhaps your marriage Or your family itself feels just like a constant war, like an endless quarrel, an endless fight. If that last one is you this morning, just as an aside, I want you to know that there's hope. If you feel like you're in a hopeless battle, if you feel like you're in a never-ending war, I want to encourage you to reach out for help. Don't believe the lie that you gotta go fix it on your own You have the church, the people sitting in this room, the body of Christ, here, willing and able to come alongside you and help. I want to specifically encourage you to consider reaching out to our counseling ministry. Now, the reality is sometimes counseling gets a little bit of a negative connotation, but I'm going to let you in on a a little secret, all right? Our biblical counseling is just intentional discipleship from the Word of God. It's intentional discipleship from the word of God, and God calls us to be disciples. We believe here at Harmony Bible Church that God's word has answers to life's struggles and challenges, and one of your brothers or sisters would love to come alongside you in your battle, encourage you, spur you on from the word of God, give you hope, pray for you, and help you see how God's word applies to your particular situation. You do not have to go it alone. In fact, God does not mean for you to. So let's consider what James has to say about these fights and quarrels. And since we're about to start a a series where we're going to talk about marriage a little bit, and I just talked about counseling, let's put those together. And we're going to talk about our text a little bit here with a marriage counseling example that I believe our text can help us with. So consider with me a, a married couple that's in a battle, that's been struggling. They've been fighting and quarreling for what seems like forever. Maybe they've been married 10, 15 years and they're just exhausted from the battle. As they look back, it seems like their whole marriage has been one long, unending war. But they decide, let's get some help. So they reach out for help, they fill out some forms, they show up for biblical counseling. And where does the counseling start? Well, how about James chapter four? 
They sit down and are asked, what causes quarrels and fighting amongst you in your marriage? Now, I'll just be real for a minute. I've been married for over 12 years now, so I have a little bit of a personal uh, insight into some of this and how it works. You know, how do you think that, you know, in our heart, in our flesh, how do you think we like to answer that question? Why do you fight and quarrel in your marriage? A lot of times, at least in our minds, some of us maybe are bold enough to say it out loud. I try not to. But like, we, we like to answer that question, right? Well, well, if he would just, you know, if, if she would just do this, you know, you know, if he would just get a little bit better at, well, if she would grow a little bit in this area, everything would be better. Well, if he, if she, if he, if she. Is that what God's word says? The reason for all this conflict, the reason for all this war is because of the other person. Because of my spouse's issues. Let me check. Nope. That's not where our passage goes. What does it say? It says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You see, our passage says, not he, not she, it's you. It's your passions, your desires, your selfishness, your pride. Why is there quarrels and fights among you? Because of our own personal pride, our own selfish desires. You see, our horizontal war with each other is a result of our own internal war, our own internal battle, our own passions at war within us, a result of our pride. Now, please hear me very quickly for a second. There are certainly situations where someone is very, very clearly sinning against someone else. It could be dangerous. It could be unsafe, especially when it comes to abuse. And that is not what I'm talking about here. And it's not what James is talking about, okay? You see, the context of James here, he's talking about there's been a a lack of unity, a failure to show grace and love and mercy to one another, a, a tendency to be defensive and argumentative and say harsh things to one another. And in those cases, most often, it takes two to tango. Instead of focusing on the other person's sins and shortcomings, James is telling us we need to check our own heart, our own passions, our own desire, our own pride that is really at the heart of the war. Now, there's likely selfishness and pride on both sides of a relationship, but James is talking to both sides. And he's saying, first and foremost, before you consider the other, you need to consider your own pride, your own sin in the situation. Consider your own passions and desires that are leading you to fight and quarrel. So getting back to our marriage counseling example, this looks something like this. For the husband, his job is going to be to go to the Lord and work on himself. And for the wife, her job is going to be to go to the Lord and work on herself. And for the counselor, he or she's job is going to be to come alongside the couple as a whole, work on their marriage, and then support the husband as he works on his stuff and support the wife as she works on her stuff. And you'll notice in the midst of all of that, there's no one saying you work on him and he work on you. See, at the root of all of this, James is trying to point out that we've got to work on the the why. Not the what exactly is going on, but the why underneath it. We've got to work on our own internal passions, our own internal desires to understand the why 
behind our fights and quarrels. And our passage is saying it's our pride. It's because we want what we want. Our passage goes on, James says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James doesn't use the word pride here, but all of that is talking about pride, about selfishness, the passion and desire we have to to build up our own kingdom. John wants to build up John's kingdom in my own pride. But James is writing to believers, right? He's writing to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and, and our lives should be a picture of us trying to build up God's kingdom, not our own. But James is wise and knows that we have an internal war raging. And the root of that war is our flesh. It's that old self that we're trying to put off, our own selfish desires to expand and grow our kingdom as opposed to God's. Our willingness to sin, to murder, to fight and quarrel, as our passage puts it, to get what we want, what we desire, what we covet. You know, a really easy way to determine if you have some misplaced passion in your life or even an over-desire for a really good thing is, are you willing to sin, to disobey God, to disobey his word in order to get what you want? I think verse three in our passage really strikes at the heart of this internal war that every believer is fighting between our own sinful passions and desire, our old self and the new self with God's spirit working in us to transform us more and more day by day, more and more into the image of Christ. And James says, you do not have because you do not ask, which I think draws our minds really naturally. Okay, he's gonna spur us on to pray, right? So what does he say next? It's like, okay, so just ask. That's where I think he's going. But what does James go on to say? He says, you ask, there it is, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I love how direct the book of James is. Direct helps me out here. He says, you ask wrongly because you ask in a way that's all about you about your desires, about your pride, instead of what God wants for you. You see, so often in the book of James, James echoes something that Jesus said and he just gives it to us straight. For example, John chapter 14 and verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That sounds pretty good, right? Let's go back to our marriage counseling session. Husband and spouse sitting in there. Maybe they know this verse and they think, I'm just gonna go for it. They misinterpret it a little bit and it goes something like this. Heavenly Father, fix my spouse so that they will make me happy, so that they will do what I want them to do so that I get what I want. I'm forgetting something, what is it? In Jesus' name. Is that what Jesus was after here? I don't think so. You see, to ask something in my name at that time means to ask something according to the person's character, 
So in this case, according to God's will, according to God's purposes, according to God's desire, which will result in, it's in our text, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, that God may be glorified, not me. You see, this is the key to that internal war. The problem with our own selfishness, the pride, the reason we do not receive because we ask wrongly because we want to spend it on our passions is because it's not about us. It's all about God. God hears our prayers. God answers our prayers. But he doesn't give us what we want to satisfy our own passions and desires, but he gives us something so much better. He gives us what we need to glorify him, to enjoy him, to enjoy the thing that's so much more superior than anything our passions and desires could ever think because the reality is the best thing for each and every single one of us this morning is not to get what we want, to get our own passions and desires, but to get what we need to live a life where we glorify God where we enjoy him more than anything else. The Westminster Catechism, question number one. First question says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, life's about God's glory, not ours. It's about God's kingdom being built, not ours. Let's drive this home a little bit more. Let's stay on the topic of prayer. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? I know many of us have this memorized, but let's not miss the power in the words that Jesus actually teaches. Right? He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means that your name would be set apart, that it would be holy, that it would be glorified and praised and receive honor. And it goes on, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom, his will, not ours. You see, that internal war, that's the root of those external wars, ultimately actually comes down to the real root, the vertical war. You see, the sin of pride and selfishness is at its most basic point, rebellion against God. It's a war between our desire to get what we want and see our own kingdoms grow versus God. His will be done. His kingdom come. And James doesn't let off the gas. He drives this into us. He drives us into our text next in verse four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we seek to build our own kingdom, when we seek to fight and quarrel because we want what we want, when we give into our pride, when we give into our own selfish passions, when we fight and quarrel with others, when we fight and quarrel with our own hearts, ultimately we are rebelling against God. James has been using terms like brother and really nice greetings and different things like that. And here he says, you adulterous people. That's a pretty strong rebuke. I don't think I've had any of you come up to me and say that. You adulterous man. You see, James is drawing our minds to hundreds and hundreds of years of rebellion by God's people, recorded throughout the Old Testament. Years in which God's people didn't follow his law. They broke his covenants. And that 
whole relationship we learn in the New Testament is parallel to marriage, right? Marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. It's a picture of that relationship between God's people and God. And you see, when we rebel against God, when we seek our own kingdom, when we fight and quarrel with each other, we're cheating on God. We sin against God. We rebel against him. We're breaking the covenants in the same way that marriage vows are broken by adultery. That's why James says, you adulterous people. Our pride leads to war with God. It makes us enemies of God, which friends will not end well for us. We don't want to be at war with God. Pride leads to war. Now I know that was heavy. Maybe you'll feel a little convicted of sin, convicted of rebellion against God in your heart, convicted of fighting and quarreling, or maybe you have some broken relationships in your life with a spouse, with your friends, with family, with another brother or sister in the Lord, and you're feeling convicted about that, to which I say, great. Praise God that he's got us in that place because ultimately that's a sign that God's working in your heart. And I say great because, friends, we don't have to stay there. We're not stuck there. Look at verse 6 with me in our text as we move to our next point. It says, but he gives more grace. God gives more grace. It doesn't say there's a limit. It doesn't say you get a little bit. No matter where you're at, he gives more grace. Whatever wars are raging in your life, in your heart, no matter how big they seem, how small they seem, he gives more grace. God has more grace for you. And how? Verse 6 continues, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our second point this morning, humility leads to peace. I'm going to do this much quicker, but I'm going to reverse everything we just talked about. You see, we talked about our pride leading to horizontal war with each other, right? Leading to an internal war with our own passions and desires, which ultimately is a vertical war, our rebellion against God. And you see, if you want peace in all of those wars, we need humility. Humility leads to peace, vertical peace with God, internal peace in our hearts and horizontal peace with each other. Now for this point, though, let's start vertically. Humility leads to peace with God. You see, when we talk about humility, we, we don't need to start with us. When we talk about fighting and quarreling, we can certainly start with us. But when it comes to humility, when it comes to selflessness, we've got to begin with God. Because having peace with God actually starts with God. It starts with God because God first humbled himself. Christ became man. The word made flesh dwelt among us. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus was in glory in heaven with his father and he humbled himself by becoming man. Stepping down from glory and arriving as a baby in a humble manger, likely born in a food trough for animals. Jesus humbled himself. He perfectly obeyed God's word. He lived a perfect, humble life in obedience to his father that none of us could ever live. And then he humbled himself 
all the way to the cross where he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Jesus humbled himself all the way to the point of death so that we might have peace with God by grace through faith in him. Romans 5, 1 tells us this. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, since we've been made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who first humbled himself. We can have peace with God first and foremost only because of Christ's humility. His humility to become man and die in our place. We can have peace with God when we repent of our sins and place our faith in him. And practically speaking, placing our faith in Christ, if we really get it, is kind of that essential first step, an initial step in our own humility. Because placing our faith in Christ rightly is acknowledging, it's confessing that I can't save myself. I deserve God's wrath. We need to humbly repent of our sin, acknowledge our need for a savior, asking God to forgive our rebellion against him and then placing our entire lives, every bit in his hands. Dying to those internal passions, dying to that internal pride, dying and losing that internal war by seeking to live for God, seeking to live for him. I love how South African author and pastor Andrew Murray puts it. He says, his humility became our salvation. Jesus' humility became our salvation, and his salvation then is our humility. You can think about that one for a long time. But you see, Jesus humbled himself and became our salvation through the cross, through the resurrection. And that very salvation, when we really understand it, should humble us. You see, all of our lives, every believer's life should be marked by humility. You know, the New Testament as a whole really drives in two primary characteristics that it talks about over and over and over again. And the most is number one, love. Not a big surprise there, but number two, humility. And you see, as we realize more deeply that need we have for a savior, as we realize more deeply our own sin and our own inability to save ourselves, that is what grows us in our humility because it grows us in our gratitude towards God. Realizing how good he is and how he is our everything. It's not about us. And inside of that, it's not just about our relationship to God. That bleeds over, that overflows to our relationship with others too. You see, as we really understand more fully what Christ did for us, that allows us to grow more and more in grace and love towards others. He who has been forgiven much loves much. You see, when we're humbled by God's love and grace and realize how little we deserve it, it allows us to be humble towards others, to have Christ-like sacrificial love and grace towards others. It allows us to do what Jesus said, to, to love and pray for our enemies. It allows us to realize when we fight and quarrel and wage war with one another, our first step shouldn't be to, to blame the other person. Our first step should be to, to look to God, to look to Christ, to look to Christ's example, what he did. 
You see, ultimately Christ humbled himself so that we can have peace with God and others. So then when we're fighting and quarreling, we need to realize our own sins. We need to humble ourselves and seek in humility to be reconciled, to make peace with others. Humility leads to peace. Peace with God. Peace with ourselves and peace with others. Pride leads to war. Humility to peace. I really do hope that the Spirit is stirring in our hearts this morning and a desire for peace. I hope you desire peace in your life. And thus, I hope that that desire leads to a desire to fight pride and grow in humility. I want to close this morning with some practical application. And to do that, I want to simply try to answer the question, how do we grow in humility? How do we grow in humility? Now, thankfully, our text has the answer. But before we get to that, I want to share two quick quotes about humility that I think together kind of lay out a good foundation, a good picture of what humility is and kind of set us up for how we might think about humility. So the first quote comes from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He says this, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. Essentially, humility is to properly think of yourself. And maybe you think, I'm pretty good. You see, pride, though, is about boasting. Pride's about making much of ourselves. Pride's about thinking we deserve more than we do. Pride's about thinking that we're more entitled to have more and more and more. But thinking properly of ourselves is understanding what we actually deserve. Understanding ourselves rightly. Understanding ourselves as sinful, rebellious creatures standing before the Almighty God. And then when we rest and realize our our place in that, to live out of it. That's humility. Martin Luther helps us out as well. He said, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we humble ourselves, our nothing, have a right estimate of ourselves, he can make something out of us. Now, I know these might not be the best quotes for your self-esteem poster, but they also point to this just beautiful reality of the Christian life. That if we want to live our, our best life to the glory of God, that occurs when we understand That we're nothing before Almighty God. That's freeing. It's fully surrendering our lives to God. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in fighting the war that we don't realize that some way the quickest way to peace is to surrender. When we're in the middle of the battle, sometimes the quickest way is to just put up the white flag and say, Lord, I surrender. Humble me. Help me realize That it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Christ lived humbly. So how do we live that out? How do we grow in humility? Pick up with me starting in verse 7. We're going to walk through five ways that James gives us to grow in humility. Five quick ways right from the text. Number one, verse 7 there. Submit yourself to God. 
First and foremost, if we're going to grow in humility, we've got to submit ourselves to God. Two things to think about here. First, we must submit our lives to God for salvation. We've got to start there. Submitting to Jesus as our Savior. Saying, here's my life. I can't save myself. God, save me. I'm going to put my faith, my trust, wholly in you and you alone. We've got to start there. But... We don't want to stop there. Submission means to come under the authority of. So we need to come under the authority of God and commit to living every single day under his will and direction for our lives. We just spent five weeks talking about that in our last series. Submitting ourselves to God is submitting ourselves to the authority of God's word. Coming under what it teaches and seeking to live and obey it. Not trusting or submitting to any of those other authorities above God's word, but submitting all of our life to the authority, God's word. Number two, James says, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I think here James is talking about resisting that temptation, that worldliness that he talks about in our text. Resist the temptation to give in to our own sinful passions, our own desires that are at war within us. Resist our pride, resist our selfishness. Think about Satan himself. What was Satan's downfall? What was his first temptation of Adam and Eve? Pride. It was the temptation to think you might be like God. So we must resist the temptation to be little g gods in our own life. Ephesians, or 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And as we give in to pride, we're withdrawing from the herd. Ephesians 4 says, give no opportunity to the devil. Paul goes on in Ephesians 6 that we are told to put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Put on the gospel, he says. Resist the devil. Grow in humility. Number three, if we want to grow in humility, we need to draw near to God. Draw near to God, and this one comes with a promise, and he will draw near to you. You see, practically, we grow in humility by getting closer and closer and closer to the one who actually deserves all praise and honor and glory. Drawing near to God looks like spending time with him through prayer, through reading his word, taking time each day to to meditate on it, to pray throughout your day for the little, the big things, whatever's going on, have a conversation with God, draw near to God. You see, pride leads us to, to pull away from God. Pride leads us to pull away from others. Just think of Adam and Eve, right? They sin in the garden, what's the first thing they do? They hide. They pull away from God. They hide in the garden. And then what do they do next, right? They need the marriage counseling. They blame each other. So they pull away from God. They pull away from each other and say, oh, he, she made me do it. No, it was him. Pride leads us to pull away. 
But humility leads us to draw near to God. It beckons us to draw near to the only one who can save us. Here's the big key. If you've not gotten anything I've said, I want you to listen to me closely here. The key here, friends, is that when we sin, when we mess up, especially when we sin and we mess up, our pride's gonna want us to to, to pull away. But when we sin and mess up, that's actually the most important time that we need to draw near to God. You see, the great lie that we believe when we sin and stumble is I need to withdraw, I need to pull away, I gotta go fix it on my own, I gotta go clean myself up, and then I can come back to God. Then I can come back to the body. And brothers and sisters, that is our pride lying to us. Don't believe the lie. Humility is having a proper estimate of ourselves. And so a proper estimate, knowing when we sin and struggle, is knowing that we need God's grace. We need brothers and sisters in the Lord to to come around us, to pray for us, give us counsel, help us through those sins and struggles, submit to God and trust him to, to forgive and heal and sanctify you, not draw away. Brothers and sisters, we all, every one of us, have sin in our life. Some of us have been trying to hide it for so long, keeping everyone at arm's length that it's just devastating. The war's been raging, and that's our pride. It's the opposite of resisting the devil. We're called to confess our sins to God and to one another so that we can pray for each other and be healed. Draw near to God. Number four. If we are to grow in humility, we need to understand the gravity of our sin. Understand the gravity of your sin. Picking up in the second half of verse 8, James writes this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, to grow in humility, we need to understand the gravity, the significance of our sin. You know, it's really easy, right, to to justify our sin or to to laugh it off, as it seems was happening in James' day. But sin is no laughing matter. It should lead us to mourn and grieve and weep over our depravity and rebellion against God. You see, when we don't take sin seriously, we're just stroking our pride, stroking our ego, thinking more of ourselves than we ought. We all know how this works, right? Right? We make a mistake, we, we sin, maybe we have some harsh words towards someone. Kids, maybe we rebel against our parents and then we justify, well, it's not that big of a deal. Back to the marriage example, it's not as bad as his sin, certainly not as bad as her sin. I think I'm doing all right compared to them. We just brush it under the rug. We try to move on in our lives. But friends, that just strokes our pride. It's giving the devil a foothold. What we're really doing there is we're just loading up, piling up ammunition for the war on the wrong team. We must not take our sin lightly. Even the itty-bittiest, smallest sin in our lives deserves God's wrath. But... He gives more grace. You see, when we rightly understand the gravity of our sin, we can better understand God's grace, his amazing grace, and be humbled by his love. 
Understanding the gravity of our sin, understanding a proper estimation of our own self, what we really deserve makes it that much better. When we really think that Jesus came to die for you, Jesus laid down his life for you, despite the significance of your sin, despite the gravity, he humbled himself and he loved you. And all he wants you to do is humble yourself and say, I need help. Lord, I trust you. My faith's in you. Humble yourself before the Lord. And that leads to our last application point. Number five, know God's grace and your future hope. This is the really good news. Look at the final verse in our text, verse 10, which summarizes our passage. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, we grow in humility by knowing that grace, knowing God's grace in our lives, knowing how much we need it, knowing how much we don't deserve it, and just knowing how good it is, and then also knowing that as we humble ourselves before the Lord, as we grow, God has this big future promise, this big future hope for all his children. He will exalt you. Think about that. He will exalt you. Your future hope in God is to be resurrected and glorified with Christ. Christ is our example. Christ did it first. He humbled himself and God exalted him. Christ was the first born from the dead. He's our example. Christ perfectly submitted to God. He resisted the devil. He drew near to his father his whole life. He understood the gravity of our sin And because he understood understood the gravity, the significance of it, he took God's wrath for us, even though he was sinless, he humbled himself, knowing God's grace, knowing the joy that was set before him, that future hope. He became man, endured the cross, and all of it to secure that future hope of glory with him for all who trust and believe in his name. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Not he might Not he could, he will exalt you. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, understand the gravity of your sin, know God's grace in your future hope and thus grow in humility. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. I wanna close with a final quote that really captures the essence of our passage and really what I hope we'd all take away this morning. I've been chewing on this quote all week and it's been good for my heart. I think this quote summarizes the surprising reality that in God's kingdom, the first will be last. The last will be first. In God's kingdom, the the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself came to serve, not to be served. Listen to this quote by F.B. Meyer. He says, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves. God's gifts were on shelves, one above another. And the higher we grow, the more comes within our reach. And then I realized that God's gifts were on shelves. But the lower we stoop, the more we get.
The lower we stoop, the more we get. Brothers and sisters, humble yourself in the Lord. Stoop lower and lower. As John the Baptist put it, I must decrease so that he must increase. And as we do that, know and trust in your future hope that Christ, that God will exalt you. Let's pray.